You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Welcome to another episode of Body IO FM with your host, Kiefer and co host, Dr. Rocky. Hello, Kiefer. And uh, he's he's getting much better on his reaction time for that, uh, so so we're proud of him over here. Um, just want to mention our sponsor sponsor again quickly. I guess it's not plural. Uh, High Lead Athletic Wear. You can find a little ad on the main page of Body Io uh, for a discount. Highly recommend their clothing. Uh, and that's easily wrapped up. Show introduction. So today. Uh, we've, we've got uh, an interesting guest because, as people know, I've become uh, more and more vocal about the policy around how we're told to eat in the United States and uh, basically how that's infected a lot of uh, modern nations, unfortunately, and infected them with our health problems as well. And we have on the show today Nina Teichold. I think I got that right. Um, yes, thanks. Thanks. Good. There she is. Uh, I'll let her introduce her new book and tell us a little bit about her background. And then uh, we unfortunately had like 15 minutes of awesome conversation before the show. So we're going to try to recapture that uh, during the podcast if we can. So Nina, why don't you uh, tell us about your book that was reviewed in The Economist of all places, which is, uh, you know, in my mind, like one of the best places you could be mentioned uh, professionally. Well, um, yeah, it was great to be reviewed in The Economist and also The Wall Street Journal. The book is called The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. And it's uh, published by Simon & Schuster. And um, I started this book almost a decade ago, um, and it really came out of an article that I was writing on it was first an article that I wrote on trans fats for Gourmet Magazine. Um, I'm, I'm an investigative journalist. I was doing a series of stories on food, investigative stories for Gourmet Magazine. And I was assigned to this story on trans fats, which came out in 2004 and blew that story wide open. It was the most commented upon story in recent history in Gourmet Magazine. So it led to a book contract, and I started writing a book about trans fats. And pretty early on, I realized that the story about dietary fat in general, you know, dietary fat is what our nutrition recommendations have most obsessed about over the last 60 years. I realized that there was just a far bigger story out there um, about how our nutrition authorities had seemingly gotten it all wrong on fat. And I shifted over to write this other book, um, which is now out. Um, and it really covers, I mean, the main force of the argument in my book is about saturated fats. And it lays out the evidence to show that saturated fats are not unhealthy. And it tells a story about how we came to believe that they cause heart disease going back to the 1950s. And the story about how um, basically a high hypothesis that saturated fats raise cholesterol and therefore cause heart disease got implanted early on in the American Heart Association's Dietary Guidelines 1961 were the first ever anti-saturated fat dietary guidelines to be published. 
And the National Institute of Health piled onto that idea. Eventually, the, U the entire U.S. government with the U.S. Dietary Guidelines in 1980 adopted that diet. And I really tell the story through all the personalities and um, institutions about how that became our national low-fat, anti-saturated fat dietary guidelines, how that became our national policy. Um, but there are other parts of the book that um, I don't talk about too much in interviews, but maybe we'll have time to talk about it today. There's a section on women and children about how they got sort of scooped up into these low-fat recommendations, despite there never having been any evidence for them um, to show that any evidence to show that that's a beneficial diet. And uh, there are chapters on trans fats, what replaced trans fats, tropical oils, Mediterranean diet. Um, so really, it, the book really covers a wide range of stories about our um, scientific conceptions about fats of all kinds, dietary fats of all kinds. Um, so, and it's uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm glad we grabbed you, especially in this flurry of publicity that uh, you've, you've been having. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I want to backtrack to your original article about trans fats. Uh, can you just give us a brief synopsis on, on what it was uh, about that that caused such a stir? Trans fats really were not well known in um, the early 2000s. There had been, in trans fats, just for your audience, they're, they're a byproduct of uh, when you harden vegetable oils, principally it's been soybean oil, mm -hmm. but also you know, peanut, corn, safflower, sunflower. When you take just the oil, in order to use it really in most the great majority of food applications, you have to harden that oil to some extent, even to make a salad dressing, to make it stable, more long-lasting, because otherwise those oils go rancid very easily. And part of the part of that hardening process called hydrogenation produces a byproduct called trans fatty acids. That becomes part of the hydrogenated oil and in different proportions, depending upon how hard that oil becomes. And it was known since um, the 1940s, maybe 50, early 50s, that trans fats were part of this partially hydrogen oil. But and there were scientists who sounded the alarm about them in the starting in the late 1970s. But they it, they were not really explored as an issue until the early 1990s, um, when the Harvard School of Nutrition, a, a researcher there really made that his signature issue. And um, and then it really didn't become known popularly until one guy, a lawyer in California, decided to sue Kraft Nabisco over the Oreo cookie saying, you know, these contain trans fats and they're not on the label um, and they should be. So I got, I, I covered that in there really hadn't been an, any big major national article on that whole issue until the gourmet article. Um, and it, that's why it attracted so much attention. And, and there's been a whole, the last decade has really seen uh, a lot more attention to trans fats. Now everybody knows what they are. Um, and the <laughs> FDA is poised. The FDA is poised. The FDA put them on the food label 
but now they're the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration is poised to ban them outright. So, but it's a very complicated story. I mean, what is replacing trans fats is a whole other issue that right. deserves attention that maybe we'll talk about later. Yeah. Uh, you know, I kind of, um, I won't say have had a love affair, but have been very interested in the research behind trans fats. Uh, like you said, uh, they actually started experimenting with them in rodents in the 50s and knew by the 60s that a high content of trans fats with carbs in the diet caused heart disease in animals. I mean, they knew this conclusively. And uh, you can go back and find the research and specifically uh, vegetable-based trans fatty acids. Uh, and uh, whenever I talk about trans fats, I try to really emphasize the difference. Your body makes trans fats. Uh, we have healthy trans fats. When you look at, uh, say, beef, you'll see that there's a, a decent trans fat content, but that's conjugated linolytic acid, which can actually have health benefits. So it's important to help distinguish that it's these plant-based trans fats that we manufacture and that we consume in high quantities, very specifically with carbohydrates that can accelerate a lot of the problems and effects we see with heart disease. Uh, now, it's interesting, yeah. if you go on a weight loss diet, uh, the trans fats are actually easily stored in body fat, but they're also uh, one of the first types of stored fat to be released and burned quite effectively and efficiently. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm... I'm that guy that's always the devil's advocate because I always say, well, it depends. You know, are trans fats unhealthy? Will they cause disease? Uh, the bulk of the research says, well, it depends on what else you're eating with them. Um, and again, we come to the elephant in the room, which is uh, carbohydrates. I, I know you have a little more focus on the refined carbohydrates like sugar, um, but I'm still of the opinion from most of the research that it's usable carbohydrates in general, whether that's um, you know, unrefined starches or sugar or, you know, used inappropriately, um, what we're seeing there is, is the effect that makes trans fats really, really evil. Um, but we do need to keep in context. There are naturally occurring trans fats. Our body makes trans fats. Some trans fats are healthy. Uh, so, you know, going right. down this road of just making all trans fats uh, illegal or whatever uh, or, you know, not able to use in, in products is... You know, something just the public needs to be aware of. I think the other yeah. the other issue, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, you know, based on some of this uh, stuff that's come to light regarding trans fats and, you know, not to be conspiracy theorist or anything, but, you know, if you look at labels currently when they say they're trans fat free, they're not necessarily always trans fat free because there isn't there a threshold which they don't need to report. Mm. I, I, 0.5 I, grams. Right. But that's true of all. That's true of all dietary fat. That if it's under 0.5 grams, then you can list it as zero on the food labels. So, but, but you know, you can food manufacturers will adjust their portion size exactly to mm -hmm. make sure that they can get right under that 0.5 grams right. limit in order to zero it out on the on the label. Right. I just now, want to say one. Yeah. I was gonna say that was gonna be my that that was gonna be my point was the 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 packaging size. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. I want to just say, mention two things, which is the the conjugate the conjugated linoleic acid, also known as vexenic um, uh, trans fats. They are they are actually chemically ever so slightly different. They have a double bond on the on a diff, on the different side of the molecule than um, the ones that are plant based. But the 
the chemical formula is the same. So, and the FDA, I mean, the, the, the producers of natural trans fats in, in beef and butter, um, they have tried to get their trans fats removed from the FDA ruling, but the FDA says we are only, we only base our rulings on the chemical, the formula. So even though yours is technically different and any chemist would recognize that we, the FDA, it's a level of fine detail that we cannot get down into, which is crazy. I think the plant-based ones, the double bonds at the omega-9 site, and then the CLA is actually two forms, uh, an omega-5 and an omega-7 are the two naturally occurring animal ones. Is that that correct? Well, uh, actually, I I always, the last time I looked at it, I think it was that it was on the, it was actually just on the, the the other side of the molecule. But in any case, it's too granular a level of under chemical uh understanding for the fda and i i think that's i just think that seems wrong because it's not reflective of the health effects of those different kinds of trans fatty acids you know one th- other thing i wanted to say was that um trans fats are a really good prism for understanding how industry the food industry influences the science our very basic science of how we understand the ingredients in our food and what I devote a chapter to in my book is really showing how the, the, the there were a number of scientists early scientists interested in trans fats and and I show how the industry really had a kind of hit team that would go around and harass these scientists at scientific conferences and they would write scathing reviews of their papers when they came out and um, and basically and basically drummed them out of the field to the point where there were only two people studying trans fats for decades. Um, you know, the food industry really steers the scientific agenda more than we think, you know, they're the underwriters of conferences. They're the ones who determine, you know, they give a lot of money for scientific research. Um, so it's trans fats are, are kind of interesting um, window into how that all works. So how do you think that's playing out today? Because there's definitely a large, uh, I I would say there's a significant momentum in the research literature where, you know, there's just more and more studies coming out looking at the deleterious effects of carbohydrates and uh, the type of carbohydrates the cereal industry, you know, has to worry about it, especially with um, what I think is a canard, but this huge focus on gluten, which takes out a lot of you know, breakfast cereals and makes a shift to rice and corn-based ones. You know, how how right now is the industry functioning to either quell that or as we've seen with some breakfast cereals, just run with it and throw gluten-free on their, their packaging? Um, yeah, that's an interesting effect of the gluten, the alarm about gluten, that that industry has really jumped on the bandwagon to produce gluten-free products. Um, I can tell you two effects that I have seen, studied and seen that reflects industry influence. Um, One is that, and I think this is perhaps the most alarming one that I know, which is that when trans fats are taken out of the food supply, most major fast food chains have taken their hydrogenated oils out of their fryers and switched over to just regular vegetable oils um, that are not hydrogenated. 
Um, and peanut, soybean oil, corn oil. Those are those those were hardened in the first place because they are highly unstable and they go rancid, especially at high temperatures over prolonged periods of time. So part of what going rancid means is that they degrade into oxidation products. They they literally turn into all kinds of like degraded triglycerides and aldehydes, formaldehyde. <laughs> There's just a number of very scary products that they turn into that cause inflammation are strongly linked to oxidized cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and um, they, interf they, they interfere in, in the brain. I mean, there's a, there's a large literature out there um, that is, that the, that is in, they're in scientific journals that nutritionists, nutrition experts don't normally read. Things like free radical research and molecular nutrition biology and journal of clinical investigations. But that whole field, which um, really began in the 1940s when vegetable oils were coming to be widely used, again, just the regular oils, not hydrogenated or hardened in any way. And, and at that point, so the food companies did sponsor some research and animal research on the subject, and it looked so scary. The animals died prematurely, had enlarged livers, caused cirrhosis of the liver. And then I, you know, I spent months trying to just track down what happened to that science, that literature. It clearly went underground, uh, or, or not underground, it just was silenced. In the same way, I think that trans fats were kind of silenced as a research literature. And um, it has now, it has resurfaced a bit in the last decade, but it's mainly taking place in Europe. And I would say that that is an area where the, the large edible oil companies, these are some of the biggest companies in America, Monsanto, Cargill, Bungie, ADM, um, they're huge companies. And I, I'm fairly sure sure that they're not interested in any of that literature, any of the, that science. They're not interested in breathing life into that science. They're not right. going to be sponsoring conferences on that science. And in fact, their journal, they, there's the, the uh, Association of the Oil Chemist Society is, that's a society for um, oil chemists, many of the, in the food industry there, they do have their own journal, but it is not accessible to the public unless you join their association. So their articles don't come up in pet, you know, in searches, regular searches that you might do on PubMed to try to find out about their products. So oh, that's, that's, a, that's a good contemporary example. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. You know, um, it's also true that all of our most influential nutrition experts today who control the expert, the main expert panels that lead to the American Heart Association recommendation and the USDA dietary guideline. Those are the, mo the two most important nutrition guidelines in the nation, the most influential guidelines, and they're controlled by expert panels that are staffed largely by the same people on those two panels. Those researchers have a great deal of industry money behind them. Again, the big vegetable oil companies, and they are recommending a mainly plant fat based diet. They're right. very anti saturated fats to an extreme. Um, so I think that's another area where you 
if you really were to go digging, you would, you would find industry influence there. So do you think that my, you know, when I talk about, uh, we just had a conversation about this actually yesterday, uh, over coffee and, uh, these conspiracy theories, you know, about how all this got started. And for me, I don't think it's as big a conspiracy theory as like the perfect storm that opened up a lot of doors for these things to happen. You know, for example, um, you know, the McGovern making the recommendations that he did. And that was around the same, you know, that followed Nixon uh, subsidizing crops, uh, which, you know, obviously are primarily carbohydrate based. Um, and, you know, those two combinations opened the door uh, to really allow industry to come in and get a foothold in certain ways that at the time look like they were following, you know, what what were being called healthy guidelines, but now that they're entrenched, they're going to do everything to prevent those guidelines from changing in what would be disadvantageous to them. Um, so do you think it's, it's been like a longer conspiracy or is that picture one that also has some validity to it? Yeah, I don't think of it as a conspiracy at all in that I think that the original scientists who got behind the saturated fat hypothesis, the idea that it causes heart disease, I think they truly, genuinely believed in their recommendations. You know, Ansel Keys, the, the University of Minnesota pathologist who was really the author of that original recommendation and got it into the American Heart Association, I think he deeply believed he was right. And his, so did his colleagues. I think the community of scientists who really got this hypothesis launched truly believed in it. I don't think they were operating out of financial gain. Um, right. I mean, yeah. It turns out, you know, yeah. and, but I think, but it is true that there was a harmony of interest and um, a better investigative journalist than I would be able perhaps to find the smoking gun. I don't, I'm not sure there is one, but when the American Heart Association, for instance, first ad adopted Ansel Key's idea, this is in 1961, there they had been launched as a national organization by Procter & Gamble, maker of Crisco Oil, uh, who has <laughs> been a long, long time sponsor. I mean, literally they mm -hmm. were struggling to even maintain themselves at all in the 1940s. And then they were designated to be the beneficiary of a national radio program that Procter & Gamble sponsored. And overnight, $1.7 million flowed into their coffers. And by their own official history, they say, you know, that transformed us into the powerhouse that we are today. That's by their own official history. So, so there was definitely a confluence of interests. Um, the, the medical director of the American Heart Association posed in an, in an educational film with a bottle of Crisco oil. Um, <laughs> so there's always been this, there's always been this confluence of, of belief and, and commercial interest. Um, and, but I think, you know, I think people like Ansel Keys, his, his buddy, Jeremiah Stamler, I, I think they, they truly genuinely believe that that saturated fat and cholesterol cause heart disease. Yeah. And, and, you know, by conspiracy, you know, I just, everybody always thinks of it that way. And, you know, what that boils down to is just bad science and misplaced faith essentially in their argument. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't really think that somebody at that level would have such nefarious 
uh, intense as to make an entire modern civilization sick. Um, right. Right. No, Ansel Keys was, yeah. Yeah, I do think it, it definitely opened the door for, like you were just saying, you know, it caused this great synergy between, you know, government, health policy, and industry that now I think we're so entrenched in, uh, you know, correcting that or getting the government to be able to back out of those associations or even want to is just its own intractable problem, let alone the health effects that it's having on the U.S. population. Absolutely. I mean, this is, you're talking about a, a hypothesis that saturated fat and then that was extended to include all fat causes heart disease, diabetes, obesity. And, you know, once you get the huge wheels of government turning behind a hypothesis, every branch of government, you know, we see, just saw this in the school lunch program, the women and infant children program, and that, that nutrition program, those programs don't allow whole milk. You have to consume 2% or less. I mean, you know, every branch of government is involved in this now, and it's just a gigantic um, ocean liner that even if there were a desire to change course, it would be extremely hard. Um, it's really been charted in this direction for decades. I mean, that's why you. I think you see such a huge burgeoning um, kind of underworld of nutrition experts out there, you know, like yourselves and doctors and researchers and the people who have flocked to this field and they exist online and, you know, they're, but they're a growing field because they are, they're, you know, they're finding tremendous people who have struggled so hard with their health and their weight and they're finding that a you know reducing their carbs, find doing something different from what the government is telling them to do, that that they're having the results that have eluded them for so long. But it is something that is still an underground world. You know, it might speak to that because you participate in it. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it might have to be maybe doing something different than their doctor tells them as well. I mean, coming from a medical standpoint, you know, all these notions. Um, that you um, have alluded to in your book, uh, you know, it's so ingrained in the fiber of what we do as a medical provider that the the, the thought process of trying to do something different, um, it, it's so foreign now um, that, that, you know, without having this open mind, um, it's almost like it's uh, such a hard d um, drum to bang on to, to get some attention. You want, My theory was that the government needs to almost set up like a black ops slush fund for dieting um, because, <laughs> you know, there, there's no way they can take this head on at this point. They can't say, oh, crap, we've been wrong for 50 years and we're the ones who made you fat and sick. Uh, here's what you need to do to try to fix it. You know, they just realistically that can't happen, but they could create a slush fund to, you know, back these grassroots efforts that would start to make people healthy despite their own recommendations. And, uh, you know, I think to me, like that's their only real play at the moment. They, they just, they could never come out and take this head on. I think that would take decades and decades and, you know, healthcare costs are going to make us insolvent by the time they could come out and say, Oh yeah, we really screwed up. Uh, so, you know, if right. they would, they would just like create this slush fund and start funneling money to the people who are actually making everybody healthy 
Uh, that would be a great way to, for them to attack this problem. So if there's any government officials out there listening, I wouldn't mind being a recipient of some of that slush fund. Um, and I could probably name about well, 10 know, other people too. So, You know, for um, the National Institutes of Health has considered the high-fat diet so, um, so dangerous that it wouldn't even fund any – it hasn't, won't fund any research of it. Um, and in fact, the only study that I know of that was funded was, um, uh, that, that it came out of the budget line for like alternative medicine, in the, the branch that funds acupuncture. Um, but it, it wasn't their nutrition department, but you know, there are signs of, there are signs that, that there are different opinions percolating through, um, parts of government. I'll just give you one example, which is that, I mean, there's some just undeniable points of evidence, like the largest ever nutrition study ever conducted was the Women's Health Initiative. Uh, that was a clinical trial with, they tested the low fat diet on uh, almost 50,000 women that started in the late 1990s. I'm sure you know about it. Mm -hmm. When the results came out in 2006, it showed that in the largest ever clinical trial on the low fat diet and on diet, any diet at all, it had been a total failure. It's ability to help women reduce weight, fight cancer of any kind, fight heart disease, diabetes, all of that was, it was completely ineffective. And when it came out in 2006, there was the response by the expert community, including the study leaders themselves was, we don't believe this. There must've been something wrong with the study. Right. We, um, you know, the women were too old. They didn't comply enough. They were, you know, they just, they're the laundry list of, of things that they said must have gone wrong with their study. It, it just goes on and on. It was like they were um, throwing their children, their own, their own offspring out of the nest for misbehaving. But in, but the results of that study have had an effect, which is that now if you go to the USDA website or the American Heart Association website and look at their top nutrition guidelines, they do not include an, a recommendation to reduce overall fat, right? What had been the top recommendation in both those institutions for decades, which was restrict fat to 25 to 35% of calories. Um, that is gone. There is no longer any overall total fat recommendation. I mean, they're still sticking by their saturated, the, the advice mm -hmm. to cut saturated fat, but the total fat recommendation to restrict total fat is, is gone. And I think that is the result of reckoning with that women's health initiative data. Now, have they advertised that or do they try to get that message out or have they said, you know, we were wrong on total fat. You really need to eat more fat. That is, is not a message that I've seen them publicizing at all. But, you know, it, it shows that there is possible, it's change is perhaps possible. Yeah, just small, Just had a note step. of optimism. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would imagine that those same researchers that doubted their research would probably on the flip side um, minimize all that data uh, if it, the results were completely the other way around. Uh, I think that's oh, one, of, of one of the things that you mentioned in your book in terms of looking at the research is that whenever something came to an effect that was not to their liking or to what they were expecting, um, it was always kind of minimized. Well, you know, all of us who 
try to evaluate nutrition research, we are all guilty of what's called confirmation bias or selection bias. We select studies that seem, we favor studies that seem to con that confirm our beliefs and we are more critical of studies that seem to contradict our beliefs. Um, and I think that that is, that's, that it's just that that has happened at such an extreme level in the, in, amongst experts who are, who have backed the, what, you know, what's known as the diet heart hypothesis, right? So saturated fat raises cholesterol, causes heart disease. I mean, just to give you one extraordinary example of it, the largest ever study of the low saturated fat diet, right? So not necessarily a low fat diet, but, but it's, it was pretty high in fat, 40% fat, but it switched all some people were eating a lot of saturated fat. Some people were eating a lot of vegetable oils, basically. This is called the Minnesota Coronary um, Project and took place in the 1970s. The study leader found that reducing saturated fat did not protect people at all from heart disease. And this was a long-term trial, clinical trial in an inpatient setting, so very, very well controlled. It's the best ever, biggest, best study of the a diet heart hypothesis. And um, the leader of that study at the end didn't publish his results. He didn't publish them for, I believe it was over a decade. And when asked why he did not publish his results, he said, well, they just didn't turn out the way we had hoped they would. Right. And this was a huge National Institute of Health funded study. So it's an extreme case of selection bias where the, the study leader himself wouldn't even you know, rejected his own study, a little bit like the Women's Health Initiative, which came later. Anyway, it's just that kind of selection bias has gone on in, in such an extreme way for decades, because again, this hypothesis was adopted as national policy before it had been tested. And when they started doing the tests and not getting the results that they wanted, they had to reject those results or twist them severely in the interpretation. Um, so it, it came about because the policy jumped the gun on the science. The science could never catch up. And so it had to be distorted. Let's, since we're on that subject, let's talk a little bit about uh, McGovern and jumping the gun to those uh, conclusions and creating those policies and a little bit of the history behind that. Cause I, you know, I find it interesting, you know, his personal dietitian was Pritikin and, um, you know, a, a, I'm assuming, you know, I haven't read the full transcripts or how the policy was created, but I'm assuming there was uh, definitely a sway towards a more vegetable-based diet, but then there was also a need to uh, recognize the meat industries in the United States and dairy as well uh, to, to get this kind of mishmash of the food pyramid that we've all, at least all of us, you know, who are 40 or 50 or less have pretty much grown up on. Uh, right. Can, can can you talk about that story a little bit? Because I just I find that to be a fascinating story of, you know, just personal bias. This were and and I think it actually reflects what we see going on in the internet right now. It's like, oh, I found this one thing that works for me. Everybody should do it, uh, which I think is right. it totally asinine uh, way <laughs> to approach diet. You know, I, I think it was I can't remember who wrote the article, but uh, he he wrote this article about people who you know, do this. And he's like, it's like finding somebody and they say, oh yeah, I'm totally qualified to fly a plane because they rode on a plane once. 
It's like, well, yeah, I know how it works. You get on the plane and you, you start at one spot and you end at the other and that's all you have to do. And, uh, you know, it's kind of what we're right. seeing. It's like the wild west these days. Um, right. so well, I mean, that's why you do science. You do science right. because the, you know, this, this, the sample size of one is meaningless, especially for something right. like diet for which there's so, there's, there's so much variation in human responses to diet. And, you know, that's why you need to have pretty large, well-controlled clinical trials to say anything meaningful. And I just want to insert a note, you know, the, the vegeta that the vegan vegetarian diet that has, you know, now is now sweeping the nation is really based on tiny studies. Dean Ornish's study, uh, you know, started with 27 people, men, and ended up with 21 or 22, um, Esselstyn study uncontrolled on, you know, a couple dozen, uh, people. So these are tiny studies, tiny, tiny. You can really, and especially given the range of human responses to diet, you cannot base, um, a diet book or a, or, or be making national recommendations about diet based on such a tiny evidence base. So, um, but getting to the McGovern story. So in the late 19, 1970s, the Senate Select Committee on Nutrition, led by Senator George McGovern, decided to take a look at the American diet. Um, it's really important to put this in historical context, which is Americans, through the American Heart Association, had already been told, middle-aged men had already been told for over 15 years by that point that they should be following a diet low in saturated fat. And, um, and maybe fat overall, but definitely cutting back on saturated fat, the fats and meat, cheese, butter, dairy. And so that was the ambient environment um, in which the McGovern Committee set forth. And they, and, and as you say, McGovern himself, um, he had been to Nathan Pritikin's program in San Diego, I believe, um, right before he started he, his committee turned to this project and Nathan Pritikin was advocating like Dean Ornish, the super, super low fat diet, almost absent any kind of animal foods at all. Right. Um, and so that was his bias coming into it. And the committee, it turned out there was one committee staffer named Nick Mottern who was, who had no science or nutrition background at all. He had come from a, he'd written for a consumer newspaper and his whole orientation towards um the food industry he's he was especially suspicious of the meat and dairy industries especially meat because mcgovern represented a there were cattlemen in his among his constituents who modern would see striding through the office trying to influence the senator so nick had nick modern had this especially suspicious view of the cattle industry and it turns out that his main mentor in the whole process of holding the hearings, writing the report, was um, a Harvard uh, researcher named Mark Hegstead, who thoroughly believed, was one of the great diet heart hypothesis stalwarts. And, and he was really the only person, or really the main, the primary person influencing and, and advising Nick Modern. And Nick Modern ended up writing the entire report. He authored the whole report. It's called Dietary Goals, and it came out of a number of hearings that were held in the late 1970s. And um, you know, he didn't understand issues like 
how to weigh epidemiological evidence versus clinical trial evidence, or what was the confounding factors, or what were relative risks. I mean, there's just so much information that you need to understand and, and experience in analyzing nutrition science in order to really be able to sift through the evidence wisely. But he really relied on, on Mark Hegstead and came out with dietary goals, which said, to fight the killer diseases of heart disease and cancer, Americans ought to cut back on their fatty, meat-heavy diet and eat a plant-based diet. It, it, it was advised Americans to return to the plant-based diet that we had always had. Well, of course, there's really <laughs> almost no evidence. There's, there's no evidence that Americans ate mostly a plant-based diet. Diet. Um, and this is a section in my book. We don't have to go into it all now, but I, you know, I really dive into that whole history about what did Americans used to eat. And mm -hmm. Americans used to eat three to five, three to four times more red meat than we do today. And we ate four times more butter and five to six times more lard. Those were the only fats that American housewives used before 1900. So there really was no evidence for most of the dietary goals report that came out of the Senate. But then that was adopted by Congress. It was sent over to the USDA. And coincidentally, Mark Hegstead, who had helped Nick Modern write the report, turns up as the administrator hired at the USDA to then implement that report. So he goes from being the architect of the report to the implementer of the the administrator of that report. And from that, he wrote um, dietary guidelines which is that that's the first set of dietary guidelines came out in 1980. And it's on those dietary guidelines that the pyramid is based. Um, we, we're now going to see the latest iteration of those dietary guidelines that come out every few years. The latest iteration is set out to come, to come out next year. But um, so that's the history. It was based on very little science. It was mostly... Uh, a, a biased group of people who wrote those nutrition recommendations and it's it's but it's been ingrained in our government ever since it's really an extraordinary story yeah that chapter in the book i thought was really interesting and in how it played out it's it's funny one of Kiefer's famous quotes is that vegetables are just a vehicle for butter and it was interesting that that it struck that chapter struck whole because you, you when you had looked at some of the, trying to find data on what was what what did we eat two hundred years ago was difficult. But in looking at some of the literature, um, you had mentioned that um, plant matter and leaf leafy vegetables were one of the things that were not really. Um, taken to heart because of the amount of labor it took to grow those foods and the little amount of nutrient density that it would get them. And that was always usually the last thing that was probably added on. Well, you know, the, the, there was a nutrition report that I, the, one of the first government nutrition reports that was written in the late 1800s by a Wesleyan professor who wrote, who was writing for Americans who didn't have, um, we're trying to conserve their resources, not spend too much on food. And he said, you know, you should really just don't bother with leafy greens or vegetables <laughs> because they're so nutritionally poor compared to, um, meat and cheese and butter. And, and so those, those really do not need to be prioritized. I mean, if you just think of like a moment to consider common, in a common sense way, um, before we started importing avocados from Israel and kiwis from 
New Zealand or Australia or wherever they come from, where did Americans, where could they have possibly gotten so many, so many fruits and vegetables throughout the entire year? I mean, if you live in New England, the, the growing season is from June to October or November. And you, you know, and no matter, you know, apples, you can store them and last them. They might last for a couple more months or some root vegetables, but you really can't live on greens and vegetables and fruit for most of the year in, in large portions of the United States. So it just doesn't even pass the sniff test. Well, even if you look at hunter gatherer data, uh, which I found very interesting when they kind of track their lifestyle, when food is at a deficit, when they are in an environment where they can't, um, where they don't have as much food as normal, that is when they pass up and ignore plant material because the effort to get it and what they get back from it isn't worth it. They will actually preferentially spend that time to find something that's more calorically dense. It's when they have a surplus of calories that they will then do more of the gathering and um, you know, dig up some tubers, whatever's around. But, you know, um, e even in that instance, they've developed a culture where they realize it's smarter to go for the calorically dense foods that are animal-based instead of, you know, wasting your time digging stuff up out of the ground or pulling some leaves off the tree that really aren't going to do much for you other than keep you regular. <laughs> well, yeah, there's just a tremendous amount of labor and preparation to to soft to make plant foods not digestible for humans right. you know you have to bury root vegetables and in hot coals for days or you know there's just a lot more labor involved as anybody knows who you know i used to be a vegetarian and the amount of time it took me to prepare a vegetarian feast was i you know days really for mm -hmm. if i was trying to roast and and saute and chop all my vegetables whereas you know, to take a piece of steak and grill that is, is, is far quicker. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love to eat and tastier just saying that they're, and they're tastier. And I want to say also, <laughs> when you say that, that those products are, they're, um, you know, meat and cheese and dairy and butter, it's not just that they're calorically dense, they are nutritionally dense. Right. So right. red meat has many, many is far more nutritionally dense and it contains a lot of animal foods contain a lot of nutrients you just simply are almost impossible to find elsewhere or are less bioavailable elsewhere. So like red meat has folate, selenium, zinc, iron, um, vitamins, B12, B6, you know, are only available in animal foods. Right. Um, you know, and animal foods are like this perfect package. There's some protein, the fat to go with them, all the nutrients. They have the fat to dissolve the fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K. So like they're the really perfect nutritional packages for human consumption. Yeah. And uh, we actually, we even, <laughs> we even geek out a little bit on the differences between like, you know, cream versus butter, you know, which one has more uh, nutrients that could be of benefit you know, from one to the other. Oh, good. I don't know that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, it turns out heavy cream's got all kinds of cool stuff in it because of the um, milk. What is it? Milk the fat. Fat globules. Yeah, the membranes. Yeah. The milk fat oh. globule membranes, uh, which is, you know, it, it's the distinct difference that makes the fat and cream water-soluble and fat-soluble versus butter, uh, which went through the process of making butter, you destroy all of those membranes. And it's uh, no longer no longer dissolvable in water, but those wow. membranes have a lot of 
a very beneficial nutrient. Uh, so that's why I tell everybody to use cream in their coffee in the morning if they're going to drink coffee. But that uh, sounds great. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, and whipped cream for dessert. They're like nothing better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, although some people can go really overboard with that. I've I've personally seen people make a very large bowl of uh, whipped cream out of out of heavy whipping cream and just eat the whole thing. I'm like, wow, that's just impressive. <laughs> Yeah, not every day, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Did you do any, um, I unfortunately have not read your book. I've been, as we discussed before, Rocky has been regurgitating it to me as he reads it. Um, (laughs) Did you do any, did did you do any follow-up on Pritikin with his story or anything? I just thought it was interesting. You mentioned um, that in the report it was to protect against cancer when Pritikin himself developed uh, essentially an intractable brain tumor and I would say he died from the cancer, but he was smart enough to commit suicide first so that he could say he didn't die from cancer, even though his, his diet might have been a contributing factor to his, his susceptibility. You know, I, did, I didn't get to the bottom of that mystery, and I, you know, I, I don't know what the story is, but I will say that um, one of, in, in the clinical trials they did on reducing saturated fats and feeding people a lot of soybean oil basically or soybean corn safflower oil instead where they literally had to make these products like soy filled milk soy filled cheese um soy based burgers one of the so-called side effects that they found were that um the men it's always all men uh died at much higher rates of cancer and there was enough concern about that gallstones was also seen in a higher incidence in, in that experimental uh, population. There was enough concern about that, that in the, these experiments all took place in the 1970s. These were the big clinical trials that, 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 that propelled the diet heart hypothesis forward. But the National Institute of Health was concerned about those results and held a series of high-level expert workshops in the early 1980s, 1981, 82, 83, to try to figure out what what was going on with those side effects and all the diet heart grandees of the day attended those workshops, including Ansel Keys and Jeremiah Stamler. And they basically said, well, we can't explain these. uh, We can't explain these results. Maybe these people had cancer already um, and (laughs) we just didn't know it. And so, and they said, you know, and we believe more, it's so it's so much more important to reduce saturated fat to fight heart disease that we we're, we just are not going to resolve this this conundrum this this these unexplained side effects. Wow. So I don't know. I mean, it's always possible that that's what happened to Pritikin, but you know, I don't know if he was eating any fat at all. Yeah. Well, I know he using his diet. He was apparently very strict with his diet, and he suffered clinical depression, which we know happens from too little fat in the diet. Um, right, and then too little cholesterol. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, people don't even realize the brain is what like thirty or forty percent cholesterol. Um, the so highest that, concentration of cholesterol is in the brain. That's yeah. right. And lower cholesterol in the brain has led to all kinds of mental, like you know, what they find is those people have higher rates of suicide, mm-hmm. accidental death, aggression. I mean, there's just there's, and then subsequently, fatty acid imbalances in the brain have been shown to be linked to depression directly yeah. linked to depression yeah so you know that that just affect i mean even in an adherent to his own diet you know we saw a lot of 
uh, mental health and physical health aberrations that apparently just everybody ignored. Like, oh, well, you know, it just happened. He must have had cancer before he came up with his diet and, you know, there was nothing he could do about it. But yeah, I have to say that, you know, I get a lot of really angry emails now <laughs> and I think all these people are suffering from, you know, anger and depression due to a low fat diet. <laughs> I mean, which is a little bit of a self-serving explanation, but I, you have to wonder like the, the level of anger about out there is just extraordinary. It's almost a religion for a lot of people. It's, you know, it's very interesting. It's become such a hallmark of their life or their work or what they've right. been telling others. You know, it's that right. same thing, you know, you've got to rather than go back and be willing to look at some of this research and say you're wrong. Uh, I, I don't know if, if you even know my background. I was I actually started my academic life. Well, my entire academic life was as a physicist. Um, so yeah. I'm more than happy to look at research. And I've done this over the years where I had some hypothesis and then uh, through use of stuff or more research, I'm like, oh, OK, maybe I was wrong. You know, I'm more than happy to right. do that because the end result is that I want people to be as healthy as possible, as easily as possible. And you can't do that if you're just going to believe something blindly and just keep, instead of refining your own work, going around and bashing everybody that says something different, which I'm sure you've experienced, um, you know, that really doesn't help anybody at all. It's, you know, and, and that's the problem with what I call the wild west of dietary advice right now, you know. You've got people who literally contribute nothing except going around and trying to bash everybody as much as they can with as much vitriol as possible uh, who says something different than what they believe. Right. You know, that really goes back to, um, I mean, you're right. I think the level of, uh, of it, it, the level of anger is in, is a little crazed out crazy <laughs> now, but if you go back to the 1950s and Ansel Keys, I mean, there is a section in my book where I talk about nutrition science as blood sport. And he, awesome. he sort of invented that. He, you know, his, his language in, in attacking his opponents who came up with alternative viewpoints or criticized his own diet heart hypothesis, his language is, is really beyond the standards of any scientific discourse that would be known to you as a physicist or, you know, I mean, or in medical practice, he, he, you know, he called people, um, your argument is like the crazy mirrors and a just, you know, distorted mirrors in a fun house or you and your commercial backers. It's one of their favorite attack lines is to accuse somebody of being backed by commercial interests or, I mean, he, was, he and his colleagues were so nasty to their critics. And, um, and Ansel Keys also brought a completely unscientific approach to his work where he basically said, I have this hypothesis. It should be right until proven wrong. So you as you know, you know as a physicist, as a scientist, a hypothesis is never right. right. It only stands up taller and taller and taller, depending on how much evidence can be marshaled, legitimately marshaled to support it. And the moment you have con contradictory or conflicting evidence, you know, as Adolf Huxley said, a single fact can slay an entire hypothesis. I mean, yep. 
you know, you, and then you have to question and reconsider and, and science always has to be self-doubting and self-questioning. You can't fall in love with your ideas. And yet Ansel Keys, his, his initial approach from the very start was, I am right. How you as the other person, you have to prove, you have to prove that I'm wrong. I'm right at the, the default is that I am right, which is extraordinary. I think in any other field of science that would be just laughed out of the room that kind of approach it's just not scientific <laughs> yeah do, do you think that has to do with maybe the you know the the feeling of heart disease at that time of the you know in the mid- middle 20th century and the fear that associated with getting a heart attack and it just played into that and gave him that free absolutely. pass absolutely i mean the when he entered the field the question of heart disease was just single most urgent public health question facing America. The heart disease epidemic had really ramped up starting in the 1920s and to become the number one killer in the nation, it was felling all the nation's leaders. President Eisenhower himself had a heart attack and was out of the Oval Office in 1955. The entire nation was watching and him and, and was just riveted by this problem. And the American Heart Association, I mean, to its credit, in 1960, it came out with dietary guidelines and it said, we, we just don't have the evidence. We, we, we want to provide some kind of solutions, but we can't say what the solution is yet. But then Ansel Keys got himself appointed to the Nutrition Committee of the Heart Association, and he was able to, um, I guess, muscle his colleagues into line behind his ideas. And, and, and there was just... You can read those early documents. You can see the the pressure that they're under to try to find some kind of solution for for people suffering from you know people fearing a heart attack. Right. What was McGovern's famous quote? Um, you know, science may have the luxury of waiting for answers, but I don't. Right. Right. And 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 these again, these scientists were so sure that they were right. So they were. They're always. They would say, you know, we. We, we know we will do some good and what harm can come. That was always, that was the, what Mark Hegstead said. You know, we can't imagine what harm could come from implementing these recommendations. <laughs> Only good can come from them. They, they didn't see, for instance, the switch to, to shifting over dramatically over to using vegetable oils and what that effect might be. You know, what mm-hmm. would be the effect of shifting so far away from saturated fat over to carbohydrates and what that effect might be. They just didn't, they didn't foresee those issues. You know, in the, in the medical profession, there's a saying that you should first do no harm. You, you your right. first job is to just do no harm. Um, and, and, and nutrition scientists of that day, they, um, they, they, they wanted to dispense advice without really knowing what, what that advice should be, but they just felt like they had to do something. Right. And it's unfortunate because at the time, the deep physiological and biological data that we have now uh, wasn't available to guide them. I mean, we can go back now. You can start literally at the mitochondrial level and work your way up to the cell and upward from there, the regulatory pathways, you know, all these, you know, all these things we know about now, the enzymatic pathways, you know, we've, we know of all kinds of nutrient transporters we didn't know about. Uh, you've got the monocarboxylate transporters in the brain. You've got the glucose transporters in cells. You've got uh, fatty acid transporters. We know how those are activated. We know how stress affects them. We know, 
we know all of this, you know, concrete science now. This isn't like guesswork. We, we're not sitting there guessing how mitochondria work or guessing how the cells work at the cellular level. We know this is fact. And you can build up from that. And really, your only decision if you start from the bottom and build upward is that carbohydrates should be a minimum part of the diet for a healthy human organism. But the problem is now we're fighting it top down. Right, right. now, the right, it's, you know, it's like carbo- carbohydrates. So we're fighting this top level argument that really doesn't have the science to back it, but nobody's willing to go down to it. And I admit it, it's not a simple task to learn all that information or how it all integrates. I mean, it's been 20 years of my life so far. Um, but, you know, nobody's willing to go down at that bottom level and say, well, let's build up from there and see how the facts match up with the recommendations. And they don't. They just don't match up. I know. And, and you know, one of the issues is that the people who are in are, are nutritional leaders are, um, in many cases, they're, they're, they're not experts in those fields. So, for instance, uh, one of the most influential voices today is Walter Willett at the Harvard School of Public public health. And he's an epidemiologist. Epidemiologists send out questionnaires to people and ask them what they've eaten over the past year. And they ask them, you know, 200 of those questions or 250 of them. And you you have to say how many peaches you ate in the last six months. And then how much, you know, how many pats of butter you ate. And I mean, it's such an incredibly imprecise science. And then he, his job as a scientist is to cross tab, do statistical analyses of those surveys. He's not trained in um, the kind of endocrinological processes, you know, the influence of hormones. And I mean, all the, you know, all the science you're talking about, that's not his expertise. Um, but he, and he, you know, he bases his papers on these surveys, which are high, don't even get down, don't even enter inside the body right? <laughs> um, in terms of their understanding. And um, so that's, Part of the, I mean, those kinds of epidemiological studies have been huge drivers of our health policy from the very beginning. I mean, Ansel yeah. Keys, he was an epidemiologist. It was his gigantic epidemiological study in the 1950s that led to our first anti-saturated fat recommendation. So epidemiology has played this outsized role, even though it's a very weak kind of science. And even in the end, even if you trusted it, it can only show association and not causation. So right. um, I consider you know, epidemiology of- as an observational science. It is the first step of the scientific process. We need right, the observations gener- to, right. yeah, to generate the hypothesis. hypothesis. Exactly. It generates hypotheses that then need to be tested. Right. It can never be but used as proof, but it is all never. the time. All the well, time. you know, hormone re- hormone replacement therapy and vitamin E um, supplements both came out of Walter Willett's epidemiological experiments. The advice on both those fronts came out of his study, and they were observations. And then when they were tested, those the all, public health recommendations had already been in place on those issues because they had been mistakenly based exclusively on this kind of weak epidemiological evidence and then when they were it was properly tested it was found out that that advice was actually harming people and it had to be retracted so even just calling it epidemiological evidence i think gives it way more credit than it deserves which you know it's it's bled into the language even talking about this science uh which just confuses people even more 
Well, and the media is, you know, is they, I mean, I, I can tell you, I've a number of stories now trying to get things published and, and the fact checker comes back to me and says, Oh, but you know, what about this epidemiological evidence? It contradicts <laughs> what you're saying. And I try to, you know, to have the conversation about how you can't really trust that epidemiological evidence. And, and it hasn't, I, I haven't succeeded <laughs> in a number right. of cases. So, um, but the other issue about, you know, I just want to touch on the, the evolution of our scientific understanding has also really happened in the field of heart disease. So when saturated fats were condemned in, in the 1960s, it was based on the most primitive understanding of heart disease. It was just thought that your total cholesterol, which was all they could measure, your total cholesterol would go up and that would clog your arteries and give you a heart attack. Now, our understanding of heart disease has evolved so greatly, as you both know, I mean, we have all these other kinds of markers that we that are far more predictable than total cholesterol for predicting heart attack risk. And you know, we have things like LDL subfractions, um, mm -hmm. LDL particle number. We have, you know, HDL turns out to be a better predictor. But we have all of these other things that we can measure now 50 years later and by none of those does fat or saturated fat look bad but our dietary recommendations are stuck back into the 1950s based on that really primitive understanding of heart disease i would completely concur i mean you know the biggest factor that i look in my practice would be blood sugar level so if you look at uh trials like the the decode trial that was published in lancet in the mid 2000s I mean, it correlated almost like uh, it, whatever the blood sugar level was. If you looked at patients with prediabetes or diabetes, it was always the blood sugar that followed the risk of cardiovascular disease. And it's interesting that 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 increase in blood sugar would then correlate with, if you look at the lipid panel, elevated triglyceride and low HDL, and not necessarily LDL cholesterol. So, it, but you know, and then this is not like you know new findings. I mean, this is we're talking. This is over ten years now. And yet, right. um, this hasn't really been pervasive among the medical community. Um, and, and, and the other aspect of that is, well, you know, when you go see your doctor, you're always fasting for your fasting lipid panel. So you always get a fasting blood sugar when the problem is, is that fasting blood sugar is probably the very last domino to fall. And it might take 20 years for that domino to fall. So, you know, I, I thought I was finding it interesting what that, you, that, I'm sorry. What do you mean by that? What do you mean that's the dominant, last domino to fall? So like if you look at blood glucose levels typically um, along a, a longitudinal period of time, um, usually it's going to be the um, after meal yeah. blood sugar that will go up first. Um, so if you always go into your doctor fasting, um, you get a false sense of security because you could have a fasting sugar that's normal, but you could have a hugely abnormal response to a mixed meal that shows an elevation that's in blood sugar after that meal that's much higher than it should be normally. So, but that but that process can take 15, 20 years before that fasting sugar actually becomes elevated to, to find that out. But by then, you've already reaped 15 to 20 years of vascular insult. Uh, so, you know, you know, one of these simple tests, a blood sugar test, if it's done in a random state, would be able to find this out. But because we're right. so focused on cholesterol and focused on, well, you need to be fasting for your cholesterol, um, you miss that boat. Um, I actually don't, in my practice, I don't care if you're fasting or not when I draw your blood because I can get two bits of information. In actuality, I think I get more insight into a non-fasting test than I do a fasting test. 
Because if I find that I draw your cholesterol or your blood sugar in a non-fasting state, it could, be, it could mean that I could find your blood sugar, but it could also mean I could find an elevated, really elevated triglyceride level after a meal, which would signal to me that you've got some type of metabolic process going on. That's that, you know, it's, it's, it's a sign that you're going down this road. So it's interesting that, you know, you look at all this stuff and we just focus on, on, on almost the wrong thing, uh, as you've kind of alluded to in your book. So cholesterol has really had this vise like hold on the nutrition research community. There are literally thousands of studies looking at how different fats, whether they raise cholesterol, lower cholesterol, HDL, LDL cholesterol, and all the effects. I mean, to the exclusion of looking at all the other biological processes in the body, it's it there's been this real really myopic focus on cholesterol. Um, for many decades. Um, and, and, you know, just as an example, I mean, a, a polyunsaturated fats, for example, vegetable oils, they, they do lower your total and your LDL cholesterol, but they also have too much of those kinds of fats lodged in your cell membrane, something completely unexplored by mainstream nutrition research and, and too much of those kinds of fatty acids in your cell membrane, if you don't, if you have too many of those, not enough of saturated fatty acids, then your cell membranes don't behave so well. Um, they, you know, that leads to other kinds of problems. But it's just an example of the kind of one of the biological processes that has been ignored by nutrition science for so many decades. Well, I think that was some of the data you alluded to in the book in terms of the Japanese population. They had a significantly higher risk of stroke, even though they had lower cholesterol levels. significantly higher risk of cerebral hemorrhages. Yeah, and um, speaking of... The, there's been this complete fascination with the Japanese because they had a... You know, they ate a lot of vegetables. Yeah, we're, we're having uh, some internet problems, so uh, we've all agreed we would, we would love to keep talking, but we're actually already at our... Hello? We're... Over our hour, hour mark. Can you hear us? And uh, we, we've actually lost... <laughs> we've lost Nina. Again, this is actually second time in the show. So uh, we're going to sign off. Unfortunately, um, we'll have the details of where to find Nina's book and her website uh, with the podcast so everybody can find out more information about her. Unfortunately, we won't get to say goodbye to her. Uh, we'll try to call her back. But um, anyway, this is another, another episode of Body IOFM. And uh, we'll catch you next time. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. You've been listening to Body IOFM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.